Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Tea and Murder, part book club, part interview show, all Agatha Christie. I'm your host, Rebecca Tundy-Norman. Delighted to have with us today Aja Barber. Aja is a London based American writer, stylist, and consultant whose work deals with the intersections of sustainability and the fashion landscape. She's the author of Consumed The Need for Collective Change, Colonialism, Climate Change, and Consumerism, published in 2021 and now out in paperback. You should all definitely buy it, and we have the uh, link to do that in the episode notes today. Welcome, Aja. Thank you for having me. We're so glad that you're here with us today to talk about Agatha Christie and to talk about specifically cards on the table. And the first thing I'm going to ask you, Aja, is how did you come to Agatha Christie? Tell me the story. Um, Because I think you're really cool. You said you (laughs) want to be on my podcast. And I said, yes. And then you said, Agatha Christie. And I went, okay. God damn it. (laughs) Would you be okay with that? And I said, yes. And in my head, I'm like, I really like Rebecca. She's so cool. And like, it means I get to like chat with Rebecca. So that's fun. And so I, I, I was saying earlier, I can be convinced to try anything new. If it's somebody that like I'm friends with, or I want to be better friends with, then I'll try it. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was, it was a trying new thing. I appreciate that so much about you. I think that, um, there aren't that many people I would do something I didn't want to do for. And if you read a book for me so that we could have a chat and talk shit about it for an hour, that's awesome. And I really appreciate you. Well, I really thank you for saying that. That's very nice. I like reading. I normally, when I'm not super busy, and honestly, it hasn't been the case for like a few years. Yeah. But in a non-busy year, I read about 100 books a year. And I do think it's nice to be pushed out of your comfort zone. So like, I have never read Agatha Christie. And in the back of my head, I'm like, I should try that one day. And so sometimes you just need someone to like push you in that direction. You're like, I'm going to try the thing. Yeah. What is your typical 
like genre of books that you like to read? Well, for what I do, I read a lot of nonfiction. Right. I I do love nonfiction, but like sustainability stuff can be a little bit dry and a little bit on the science side. Yeah. Which science is not my strong suit. But I also read a lot of everything. I read a lot of, you know, nonfiction about race. I read a lot of fiction, actually. I enjoy fiction so much. Lots of biographies. I love myself a good biography. Um, so yeah, I read a lot of, I read a lot of everything. Like I, I tend to do reading for my job, yeah. but I also try and make space for pleasure reading as well. Yeah. And would you say mysteries in general are a genre that you like within fiction? No, no. I do not read mysteries <laughs> at all. Actually. Oh my God. I'm so happy that you're on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to read fiction about like complicated relationships. Okay. Stuff. Like that, you know, that I would say that's the genre I reach for the most. Yeah. Um, and that's also something that I am interested in writing in the future. So, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Okay. So, first Agatha Christie, not really a big mystery reader. Impressions, first thoughts, throw them at me. Y'all are a bunch of weirdos. <laughs> this is a weird genre. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Whenever I meet someone that's like, I'm really into Agatha Christie, I'm going to be like, oh, oh, okay. Oh, no. Oh, no. We've revealed ourselves. Well, also, you told me you grew up reading them. Yes. And I think that is, like, really interesting because, like, I would not have had the attention span when I was younger than Lisa. I wouldn't. Like, I barely have it as an adult and like yeah as a kid it makes me wonder what you were like as a kid basically we, I mean you said it weirdo like that that <laughs> kind of <laughs> sums it up no I well actually what I do think is interesting about that is a lot of the people who are fans of Agatha Christie came to her as children and I think that is a big element of her fandom is people who read her as kids and continue to find some kind of comfort whatever that may be in the stories. Yeah. So I do think it's really fascinating to talk to you who hasn't read them as a child and is reading their first as an adult because yeah. the perspective is completely different. How did you bridge the gap? Because obviously, like, these were written a long time ago. Yeah. And, like, I think I would have struggled with that as a kid. Like, mm. what are they talking about? Wait, what does that mean exactly? You yeah. know what I mean? Like, the language is much different than obviously how how we speak today mm-hmm. um there's there's a lot of things that just wouldn't be acceptable today Comple- oh completely so, I'm sure we're gonna get back to we're that we're gonna get like, into that for I, sure I think I I think I definitely would have struggled with it as a kid mm. because I just struggled with anything that wasn't super modern mm. before I was a certain age like I didn't grow up um reading period dramas but then when I was like a young adult I really started to like fall in love with like Emma and Persuasion yeah. and you know all of those uh, little women mm-hmm. I read that when I was a kid actually yeah same um that's yeah that's an interesting point I think um for me because I grew up with two parents that are South African and they mm-hmm. so they their language kind of isn't I would say very American in general so a lot of the uh. phraseology that I grew up with as a kid is present not in terms of uh. like the way they talk about like not the othering and the racism and the colonialism 
yeah. that stuff is obviously very much of a time, but like the the Britishness of it was yeah, much yeah, more yeah. present in my life. And I also grew up reading like Enid Blyton and The Secret yeah. Seven and The Famous Five and, you know, The Boxcar Children and all those British books. So I think mm-hmm. I believe that there is a Enid Blyton to Agatha Christie pipeline for British children. I and, think you're yeah. right, because I've had a lot of friends tell me that they read Enid Blyton. And that's another one that is like, wish is the sound of it going over my head. <laughs> I I grew up um, reading Judy Bloom, oh, love Judy Mary Bloom. Downing Hall, mm-hmm. you know, like... Mm-hmm. The, very like a Beverly Cleary, like very yeah. Americanized babysitters club, mm-hmm. very, very Americanized, very like modern. Although Judy Bloom, I would argue is definitely like 60s, 70s. For sure. And then babysitters club was modern. Uh, Ramona, definitely 60s, 70s as well. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. And like Harriet the Spy and um, Sweet Valley High was like my like guilt read that I read like under the covers because I wasn't allowed to read it because it was too sexy. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing ever happened to those books. Did your parents not like the sexy covers? Was that it? I think the covers were quite sexual and that was the most sexual they got. But Mm -hmm. like my parents were like, well, we're not going to read it to find out. We're just going to assume that this is terrible. We had Sweet Valley High, but yeah. I actually thought Sweet Valley High was really boring. Like, I just wasn't, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I read Judy Bloom forever. There's no going back after that one. It's definitely a step up. It's definitely a step up. Yeah. I think the, yeah, the Sweet Valley High books are, yeah, they're like pulpy and silly. Um, yeah, they are. They are. Did Was like Judy Bloom's forever a thing when you were growing up? Like, yes, absolutely. It was the book that everybody would pass around and the copy like be like dog-eared on certain pages yeah (laughs) totally and the teacher would be like what are you guys laughing about would be like nothing (laughs) (laughs) nothing definitely don't look in my backpack yeah yeah (laughs) totally yeah it's so fascinating how those kinds of books can really like send ripples through into I don't know if this is still how it works because of the internet but like that was the culture we had access to were like books yeah. and magazines and like passing something around I think is a very foreign concept these days. I don't yeah. know. Maybe it's not the case, but that's No, the I, I think it is and I think that's why I still buy books. Yeah. So like obviously, you know, I talk a lot about consumerism on my platform and I will tell people like the one thing that I buy the most of now is books. Totally. And like my book piles are out of control, my <laughs> partner will tell you. Um but I love, love, love passing books on to friends. Whenever yeah. friends come over and I'm like, what are you reading? They'll be like, oh, you know, I'm in search of a good book. And then I just go to the bookshelf and I'm like, this is your book today. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I love that feeling as well of like, take this one. Tell me what you think about it. I can't wait to talk about it with yeah. you. The feeling of getting to talk yeah. about a really great book with a friend. There's nothing better than that. In my parents' neighborhood, there were some women where we would just, like, leave books on each other's um, doorsteps, and it was really nice. You never, like, you'd come home, and there would just be, like, stacks of books waiting for you, and I would love to sort of get that sort of, like, relationship going with someone near where I live, uh, because I really miss it. It's just, like, it's lovely. So I will never go digital because I love having a book. I love passing a book on to a friend. I love the smell of a new book. I love oh, bookstores. Yeah. 
So yeah, I will never actually, I mean, one time someone gave me a uh, Kindle and I was just like, no, what Mm -hmm. am I going to do with this? I mean, it was used, Yeah. but like, I, I was just like, no, thank you. Yeah. I do have a Kindle and that's mostly because, um, like I have a small apartment and I have kids who, when Mm -hmm. they sleep and I want to read in the dark, I can't turn on the light. So I needed something where that had like a backlight for me to read on. And so I use my Kindle every single night, but there is nothing Mm -hmm. like cracking the spine of a book. book. I mean, there just isn't. Well, also, I think a Kindle is also really good when you're traveling as well. Yeah, for sure. Like my bag is always made quite heavy by my books. Generally, I take something that I plan on like leaving. So Mm -hmm. then like my bag gets lighter. I do the same with shoes when I travel. I'll take a pair of shoes that are like on their last leg so that if they like decide to like, go out then I can just leave them and then my bag is lighter that's so smart yeah it's like these heels are almost dead and I don't think they can be repaired so I do that with uh, cosmetics where I like have the last little bit of something that yeah. I'm, gonna use. I'm like yeah because I can toss this and now my bag is immediately like what an ounce lighter <laughs> I know right but yeah. you still feel like you did something there yeah it's exactly. like when you finish part it's... of the lotion totally. out of a bottle yeah you're like <laughs> way to go way to go yeah I know um but so okay so first impression weirdos say more say more about first impressions with Agatha Christie um I I struggled with it yeah and as I mentioned I just I think today we would have a lot of conversation about racism yeah the colonialism totally the uh misogyny 100%. I actually kept I kept running notes on my computer of phrases that made me go oh wow oh damn oh, yeah oh wow yeah 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 and I think as a kid I would have been like wait what hold on I'm so confused yeah 100% <laughs> so yeah it, I I can I, I understand that if you feel an attachment to something that you really started to understand as a kid then like you're in a completely different place than me who's coming into it as an adult and it's just like no (laughs) yeah and I also think um as like and we've talked about this a little bit as well that like sometimes when you love something you want to be critical of it while still being able to love it and I think Mm -hmm. like for example I was listening to an old episode of a podcast that I actually love recently with Roxane Gay on it and she was talking about how she loves sex in the city um and she was saying like I basically love it for what it is. I know what it is. I can write a really fancy essay about it if you want me to. But like at the end of the day, I just like what I like. And yeah. and I think there's a lot of value to that, being able to say like, I can critique this and I should critique it and we should read it critically. But at the same right. time, I'm also allowed to like the things I like and yeah. uh, talk about why. And I think especially the things that kind of like in- imprint on us as children we do have mm-hmm. like a special place for those things in our heart. And that's yeah. kind of where I come to Agatha Christie. And quite a few things in our society have not aged very well. No, so, like, like that most is, things that do is, not age well. Exactly. I mean, I, I still, I, I think I feel the same way as Roxane Gay about Sex in the City. Of mm-hmm. course, I do. My critiques sort of come from a place where I'm just like, why do I have so many high heeled shoes? I don't even like heels that much. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> yeah, you have a very specific like gateway to Sex in the City as well, which is like the fashion element. Um, totally. So I can see that. But I, yeah, I think it's it is one of those things where 
especially with particular books, I will sometimes be like, this is too much for me. Like there are some some of her books where I really don't feel that I can continue reading them and some Ooh. of them where where I can. And I think that's that's also like a personal thing of like what mm-hmm. what feels like too much um, yeah. and what feels irredeemable versus what feels extraneous, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, and I mean – that's really all, you know, I can say about it in the sense of I get why as an adult and as a critical reader, you would come to her books now and be like, no, I don't think so. Not for, not <laughs> not for, for me. me. <laughs> well, let's dive into the actual book because then you can tell us yeah. how much you hated it and why. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm just going to give a little bit of background on the book we did for this um, episode, which is called Cards on the Table. Um, Cards on the Table is a Hercule Poirot mystery. It was published in 1936. Um, It was published right after the ABC murders and Murder in Mesopotamia and right before both Dumb Witness and Murder in the Muse, all of which are also Poirot books or collections. So this was a period where Christie was writing like two to three books per year. So it was a really productive and popular time for her and also a time when people... She was really getting about. Oh yeah, she she wrote 66 mysteries. (laughs) So, you know, she really, really was producing them. And she was a she was a jobbing novelist. Like this was her job. She was going to produce. Um, and this was this was the time of kind of her career when Poirot was the most popular. So she was just churning out Poirot books. Um, Cards on the Table was actually really critically acclaimed when it came out because not only of the plot twist, which people thought was really interesting, but also because of the tightness of the writing. Uh, which I which I do agree with, and I think this is one of her tighter books because of the problem set she gave herself to solve. In terms of the book itself, this is the first appearance of the crime writer Ariadne Oliver, who many have believed to be a kind of like stand-in for Christie. Um, but her biographer Laura Thompson, who's also a guest on this podcast, actually believes that she uses this as kind of a screen rather than as a real proxy. It's kind of a way for people to feel like they know who she might be without her having to reveal anything about herself. It's the third book in which Superintendent Battle appears and the second in which Colonel Race appears, but actually the first time that Race meets Poirot. Colonel Race first appears in the book called The Man in the Brown Suit in 1924, um, which we'll also do on this podcast. And it's not a Poirot or a Marple book. It's just like a straightforward mystery. Um, So he happens to be in that book. And then she later on, like 12 years later, put him in this book. The forward of this book, Christie sets out this problem for herself, right? She says... Any of the four suspects could be the killer. They all have the motive, they all have the means. So the deduction is entirely psychological. And this is like something that Christie does a lot. She gives herself a problem and then solves it within the pages of the book. Um, And it's often how she kind of makes these formulaic mysteries. So that is Cards on the Table, um, or a little bit of background on it. Do you want to give us a brief synopsis of the book, like just a quick one? (laughs) Um, this guy dies, and <laughs> go on. Really likes him. They do not like him. They do like, not I, like it's him. Very clear, and they all seem to express some sort of fear towards him. Yes, they're like, "Ooh, he's so scary. He's so oriental." Yeah. And I'm like, "Oh no, oh, yeah. oh no!" So they're like, "Ooh, I'm afraid of the Asian man," and then he dies. Yeah, and then they're all like, "Oh well." Huh. I guess he kind of had it coming. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there was a weird feeling totally. about this man being killed off, and maybe it was because all of them were suspects. But at the same time, 
I think that they were also a bit like, oh, wait, like we were afraid of him and now he's dead. It was a very odd, like, mm-hmm. deal. But also people really love their bridge. They love their bridge. They like, love their bridge. I don't know enough. I, like, I don't know how to play bridge, but I know I've it involves a lot of math. So I don't like yeah. it immediately. Exactly. Yeah. I don't like math either. And I was just one of the characters is going on about, oh, I'm just so addicted to bridge. And I'm just like, it really was like that back then. Yeah. Um, and so there's there's how many suspects? Four, four. five, four. Yeah, four. Yeah. Um, and Mr. Perot has to are we are we doing spoilers? Yeah, you can do spoilers, absolutely. Uh, okay, all right. He has to figure out who's who's done it and he uses all sorts of reasoning and somebody actually confesses to doing it, but spoiler, it wasn't them. Um, and I actually suspected that it was the person that it was. I feel bad spoiling it. You don't have to spoil it. You don't have to. I just personally believe that once a book is more than 80 years old, it like, fair game. There's no such thing as a spoiler. (laughs) like fair game. I mean, if you, like, look, if you really want to know who kills him, you can actually just like read the like plot on Wikipedia. But I I know. I just don't, it's, you know, it's because I'm, it's because I have like a platform Mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what it is somebody will get mad if you spoil it totally so I just can't do it I can't do it yeah so it's it's kind of a it's like the original bottle episode in a way there's four people alone in a room with this man they all have a reason to kill him they all have the means to kill him and they all have a chance to kill him and so the the question becomes uh, who would kill him in this particular type of way? Not just who would kill him, because all of them could have killed him, but who would do it in the way that they did? Um, and that's kind of the basis of the Poirot investigation. And he uses the bridge as a way to investigate their personalities. Do you think also, though, that there was a little bit of deus ex machina in there with the whole, like, we got this person to pose as an actor and he pretended like he was watching the windows. It was a bit like, aha, there's an extra character. <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, there's often, like, in Christie, there often is kind of like a little setup towards the end. Um, okay. And there's always, like, this grand reveal and it often has to do with some kind of setup. So, um, yeah, that's, like, very true to the Agatha Christie universe and very true to the Poirot psychology, which is that he's like very egotistical. He likes to make grand reveals. Um, He likes everything to be incredibly dramatic. Um, And that's kind of one of his flaws, really. It's one of the flaws that Agatha Christie points out again and again, is that he has this need for people to like be really impressed by the way he reveals the crime. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role 
like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, Ooh, that just reminded me of, um, what is that French series with the guy who's obsessed with magic? Have you seen it? No. Lupin. Oh, yeah. Have you watched? Yeah. Like, well, I, he loves a bit of florist, doesn't he? I love Lupin. Like, I... I've I heard it's great. So, I haven't seen it, but I've heard it's excellent. Oh, yeah. it's, it's brilliant. And yeah. my, it's my brilliant. producer is nodding. She's saying it's excellent. <laughs> the, the social commentary of Lupin is yeah. also, like, brilliant. Okay. Because one of the things that they play with is the fact that, like, he is he's a black man. Right. And he is both invisible in some situations and hyper-visible mm-hmm. in others, mm-hmm. which is totally how I feel. Yes. I feel like people either absolutely blank me and do not see me mm-hmm. or they only see me. That's and interesting. it's very, they, they do a very good job of playing with like that. Like playing aspect. with that. Yeah. And it's actually, yeah. that's so interesting because that is really the crux, not in this particular book, I would say, but the crux of the Poirot character is that he is a Belgian refugee and mm-hmm. the element of his foreignness is what Christy plays with the most in terms of, they, yeah, of having people respond to him. Yeah, and they do this in this yeah. book, but it's, I would say there are other books that like exemplify it better. But he, he plays up his foreignness or plays down his foreignness in order to get people to respond to him in particular ways. And it's a really, it's, never, it's a pretty subtle, but I think very real commentary on how people respond to foreignness in Britain at that time. Well, I actually do the same thing as someone who lives in the UK mm-hmm. and is not from here. Mm-hmm. I definitely will play up being an American, particularly when I have an asked nine question that I should know the answer to. <laughs> I'm like, let me just turn on that Americanism. I know. That. And I generally feel like if I were English, people would tell me to fuck off. <laughs> but you feel like when yeah. you play up the foreignness, they have more like... Um, more compassion. More compassion, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, totally. Um, in this time frame, they're like, ooh, he's French. And he's like, no, I'm Belgian. And they're yeah. like, same difference. <laughs> right. That's And that's an ongoing joke where like people are like, well, Frenchmen always act like that. And he's always like, I'm Belgian. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's very much something that he plays with and something that I think Christy plays with a lot. And sometimes it's hard to tell how much she likes him as a character. Mm. Um, and, but I, but I do think she definitely, there are certain types of men in particular within the books, especially like official men who are very turned off by his foreignness and he uses that to his advantage. Um, so it's quite interesting, I think. Yeah, no, I definitely picked up on that hard for sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, yeah, so it's, you know, there there is social commentary within it, but I think sometimes it gets a little bit lost because there's also casual racism and colonialism and Oh my goodness. I have I have some great lines. So okay, go for I it. I never trust the wealth, very unstable. He died of something queer, something Japanese. I've never bought Japanese spend. And then the whole thing with hysterical women Doctors have a difficult time with hysterical women. There's no doubt that a woman lashes out with her tongue when she's a bit rattled. And I'm just like, what? Yeah. 
I mean, the way they dismiss the woman that he ended up killing at the beginning by basically just saying, like, well, she was a hysterical woman. And even her husband yeah. was convinced that, yeah. she, like, she was. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, and that's very present, I would say, throughout her books, the kind of idea that women become very emotional. And she sometimes mm-hmm. plays with it in the sense of, like, you know, women are, become very cunning. Um, but mm-hmm. I would say it's often rooted in a kind of misogynistic um, take on femininity, which is yeah. um, which is hard to read and and hard to like come to terms with, especially because she, as a female writer, was doing what so few women were doing at that time, which was making a ton of money. Oh, money! Being a writer, <laughs> like yeah. like outrageously popular. Um, she yeah. was not someone who was like posthumously famous. She was famous in her lifetime and rich in her lifetime. Um, yeah. And she liked I it. that life. Yeah, me too. And she liked it. <laughs> she liked it. She appreciated it. She kept churning out those books. You know, she knew where her bread was buttered for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's it's no. a contrast. <laughs> yeah. No, totally. I just think how great would it be to like just be a writer? Like right? I am a writer, but I have social media and my dream is to not be on social media and to just write like I want that life and I can't imagine what it's like where all you do all day is write you don't have to read any emails you don't have to like do any of the admin stuff you just get up get at your typewriter and just turn it out what a dream so I think that you know, it's definitely a book that really exemplifies, I think, a lot of like the colonialist mindset that Agatha Christie has really throughout a lot of her books. But the one thing I do think is quite interesting is they keep calling him Mephistopheles, um, which I don't know if you noticed that, but they call him that like throughout the book. And yeah. um, just an, a note, not Mr. Mephistopheles from Cats, but Mephistopheles. And um, <laughs> Mephistopheles is a devil spirit from the classic yeah. German legend of Faust. So even though the reference in itself isn't necessarily colonial or racist, there's a kind of sense of like othering and like the evilness of the exotic in a sense Yeah, um, that I find like throughout this book. And we do find out later that Shaitana, who is the man who's been killed, is Syrian. Um, Yeah. And it's some, I mean, it's literally one sentence, but that is kind of meant to be like the placement of him. Yeah. They even say like, oh, it's a it's evil like they say things like that in the book so Mm -hmm. like they will they will use exotic with a bunch of other adjectives that means bad right and it's like oh weird yeah and I I do think that Poirot has a little bit more empathy for him um, in the sense that he tries to warn him before he has this party because Shaitana comes to him and he says I'm gonna have this party and I collect murderers and I'm gonna put them like you're going to get off. Yeah. Poirot is like, that sounds like a way to get murdered. And he's like, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, it'll be fun. Yeah, he's like, come have a delicious dinner um, with my murderers. And Poirot is like, I think at one point he's like, so what, you think it's a bad idea so you won't come? And he's like, oh, no, I'm going to come. <laughs> um like, Oh, yeah, I bought these leopards that apparently eat people's faces. Do you want to come and pet one? I don't know. It sounds like they might eat my face. <laughs> <laughs> that is literally almost the exact conversation. Um, and he's like, but I still shall come to see them. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think he even literally says, if you put yourself into the tiger's cage, don't be surprised if the tiger jumps. 
Right. Um, exactly. And and that is exactly what happens. And and Poirot calls him stupid. He says he was a stupid man who put himself in this position. And and this is an Agatha Christie thing where like the victims of murders are constantly being blamed for their own murder as though they <laughs> are the ones who have set it up somehow. And in in a weird way, he did set this up. And I actually think for me, there's a little bit of a question of whether he knew yeah. he was going to be murdered because maybe, maybe yeah. that was his obsession. Like he was just like, Oh, yeah. I know I want to get off. So I'm going to have, I mean, I like, I hate the whole they were asking for it but like totally. my man you had a party full of murderers <laughs> I know. like come on you had a party full of murderers and then said at the table like basically baited them and said yeah i know some of who's you are murderers who's <laughs> yeah. gonna off me <laughs> yeah like and then it basically cl- chicken clucked at all of them you know yeah. like mm-hmm. so i do think but i i actually do think there's a reading of this book particularly because um there's that when they find him, he's kind of like, or when he dips his head down, he's smiling. Yeah. Um, I yeah. do think there's a reading of this book where he wanted this to happen and it was kind of his ultimate form of art. Fantasy. Yeah. Fantasy. Yeah. Or yeah. fantasy or or like he seems very, he's very artistic and poetic. He loves beautiful things. He loves collecting. So this is like a form. Yes. Yeah. That's actually a really interesting chance because I did think the whole murder of it's like, he's smiling. Okay. All mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You yeah. know? So I've I've always kind of subscribed to that, and it's it's certainly a unique idea of unique way to die, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but uh, I think that there is a reading there, and it would be probably then the only instance in which you could say someone was responsible for their own murder. That that makes me think, and this is quite dark, but you know the film Seven. Yeah, it makes me think of that. Mm, um, mm. You know, like. I, the first time I saw that movie, a lot of it was like, oh, that was so dark, it went over my head. Yeah. And the second time, I really started to understand that the, the murder wanted to be part of the seventh sense, essentially. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so yeah, it's very, and, and you're like, oh, that's brilliant writing. But I always find that like, when you go back and look at things from history, you're like, oh, this has been done before. Okay. Totally. Yeah, everything's been done before. It's just about doing it in a different or interesting way. In and a I think way. that's totally Christie's take on everything. I mean, she she would never say that she was the progenitor of anything. Um, yeah. She liked to take formulas and fit mm-hmm. them. You know, basically, mm-hmm. it's basically an algebraic formula, and she likes mm-hmm. to fit it all in. Um, my personal interest is less in the formulas because I think a twist is a twist, and sometimes they're fun, and sometimes they're not as fun, whatever. I really love the psychology of her main characters. And I think in particular Poirot and Miss Marple to me are like really fascinating studies of contrasts and Mm -hmm. fascinating studies of the social fabric of the time, how people responded to these people, um, where their strengths lie, where their weaknesses lie, um, is partly personality, but partly kind of her examining the ways in which society judges people. Um, And Mm -hmm. Poirot, I think, is a really interesting example of that. Um, And I don't know that this book is the best example of that, but it is, I think, a really great example of his um, sleuthing abilities. This is really like he gets to the psychology of people in ways Mm -hmm. that they are so – they think he's so strange 
that they're not even on their guard about giving him the answers so, that about, eventually yeah, lead. Exactly. Yeah, so he's it's all, almost he, a bit, he can fly under the radar by just being who he is. That's because right. People aren't really taking it seriously. Exactly. I mean, he goes to every single one of their houses and asks him all, all these questions about bridge and like all the items that are in the room. And they're like, this guy is so weird. Like, I guess I'll just answer these questions. Very queer. Yeah. So queer. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and they just answer the questions without even considering that he might be um, solving, a, this mystery. solving the crime as they speak. And they all know who he is. I mean, one mm-hmm. of the conceits of the books at this point in the books is that he's very famous. He's a fa- yeah. which like I love the idea of a famous private detective as though like that was a thing at any point in the world. <laughs> but like. That is one of the things is he's a famous like society private detective and people know who he is. And in fact, I think Anne Meredith at some point says like, well, of course I know who you are. Um, mm-hmm. And so the fact that they would still allow him into Give their him homes. information. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I really like the women with the stockings where it was. Yes. And like, Meredith. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the women that he bought them from, they were like, well, we'll give you a discount for two dozen. He's like, I forgot what the very specific number was. He's like, no, I want this he amount. He wanted 19, then, yeah. Yeah, 19. And he was like, he walked away. So it's like, lucky girl. Hope she's taking him for everything he's got. Yeah, well, they basically call him a dirty old man. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And um, I know it's, and you know, again, it's a thing of like his foreignness and they assume he's French, right? And they're like, well, these French men and like da-da-da. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> basically, that's exactly what they say. And that's another thing that he often plays with is like, because he is really not sexual in any way. Um, yeah. And I mean, it's when he does something that can be perceived that way. It's funny, but that's not why he's doing it. Exactly. There's that he kind of is also able to interact with young women um, and plays on that a little bit, whereas he and he knows that's something he'll never kind of follow through on. Um, So there's like a safety there as well, um, which I think is kind of interesting. He's he's always like he often calls himself Papa Poirot. I don't think he does it mm-hmm. in this book, but he calls himself Papa Poirot to young girls when he says, like, you can tell me if there's something you need to get off your chest, tell Papa Poirot, you know, <laughs> and it sounds weird when I say it, but I guess with his French accent, it's probably like less creepy. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> See, if a guy says that to me, I feel like he's dirty old man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, today, if a man called himself Papa to me, I'd be like, mm, I don't want to be in this in this situation anymore. But um, yeah, that was a weird example. I have to say, like, thank you for pushing me out of my comfort yeah. zone to, like, to be like, wow, this is not my thing. But not your it's thing. Funny. Did it's you? Funny. I mean, did you find Poirot interesting as a character? Did you find any of it interesting? Um, I found him to be a bit of a know-it-all. I yeah, thought, he's totally a know-it-all. I think if I were around him, I'd be like, shut the fuck up. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can swear. Spoilers and swearing all allowed on this podcast. There were times when I was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You think you're so smart, don't you? <laughs> I found myself getting quite annoyed with him, oh to be God. honest. That's, I, I, totally, I totally hear that. He is a know-it-all. And it's again, it's one of his flaws. And it's um, yeah, he constantly like talks about... Yeah, and he constantly talks about how he's, like, never had a failure and, you know, like, all this kind of stuff. And, yeah, I think if you met him, you'd be like, this guy is so annoying. 
He's so very annoying. irritating. Yeah. Move him away from me. Like, <laughs> I, I confess, I did it. Now leave me alone. You, know? <laughs> yeah, you, you didn't could... really do it, I know, but please leave me alone. <laughs> do you think that's why Mrs. Lorimer confesses? She's yeah, like, how she do I get this guy out of my house? I need to go yeah, play bridge. So, Aja, would you ever read another Agatha Christie book again? Don't hold back. No. Oh, my God. No. No way. <laughs> Not are you ever going to talk to me again? Are we still friends? Oh my God, we're totally going to okay. be friends. Cool. And I'm going to cool. brag cool. on you for the rest of our friendship. <laughs> about this yeah, we're going to be uh, friends. And I'm going to be like, remember when I read Agatha Christie for you? Remember <laughs> that? Like, no. Oh my God. I'm going to send you the biggest gift basket, but it's only going to be Agatha Christie books. Oh God. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Don't answer the door, Steve. I know what that is. <laughs> A man in a three-piece suit is going to be presenting you with Agatha Christie books in about five hours. Yeah, no, I will probably think it's nice to know what isn't for you. Like, I agree. I, I have this fear, right, that I'm going to, like, die and not read all the books I want to read. And so, I took away, like, a week of your life. I, no, you didn't. No, okay, I went good. through it pretty quickly. But, okay, like, good. No, I do. I, I worry about like not reading all the books yeah. you want to read. And so yeah. I think and by testing out new things, you can say that's not for me. Yeah. And then you don't feel like FOMO because you know that maybe it's not your thing. But totally. that's okay. You tried it. And that's totally. good. No, I, to try new things. I totally agree with you. And I cannot say how much I appreciate you doing this for me because even though you hated Agatha Christie and this book, I still think we had a f- awesome conversation. <laughs> Well, you know, there is a lot to talk about there. Like when you first told me you had a podcast about Agatha Christie, I was like, nerd alert. I know. Um, You were like, you need a therapist. (laughs) I have a therapist, by the way. (laughs) I think it's great when people are passionate about things. I think, you know, I I love that. And I I love people that are passionate about things. Like I find... But that's because you yourself are passionate. You are so passionate. Exactly. Exactly. And... You know, like I said, I do have a fear of like dying and not reading all the books I want to read. And so it's just, you know, knock out a few things where you wouldn't be pushed into that zone, but you're kind of like wondering about it. Mm -hmm. And then you go into that zone and you're like, no. Well, I'm I'm so glad I got you there. You're welcome. I mean, you know, I also will be expecting a gift basket from you. Um But um, what I will say about books that people should read is Consumed by Aja Barber, The Need for Collective Change, Colonialism, Climate Change, and Consumerism. It's a great book. And it's also, if you're not sure where to start with sustainable fashion and consumerism and, and issues around climate change, I think this is a really great book to start with because it's very non-judgmental, I would say. And it's very, um, it lays things out in a way that are incredibly easy to understand and I think really make people feel like they can take on change incrementally. Thank you for saying that. That's really nice. I would never judge anyone. Well, no, I'm lying. I judge people, we all judge. But, but, you know, in this conversation, every single one of us has bought that. Fashion. Mm-hmm. Like that's the reality. Totally. Because that's what's been sold to us. Yeah. And it's good to know what went into these systems and why we should slowly start to move our chair away from them. 
100%. And that that is very much what this book does. And so I really do recommend it. There will be um, a link to the book in our episode notes. And um, you can also find it at your local library, hopefully. So support yes, local libraries. I love the library. Um, Aja, where do you want to be found? Would you like to be so, found by the people? And where can they find you? Well, I think they should put their sleuthing cap on. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I guess they're crispy me. Um, I am on Instagram, but, you know, everyone knows Instagram is weird these days. But you can find me at Instagram.com slash Aja Farber. <laughs> so I don't do a lot of ads on Instagram because it's not very sustainable. So I have my work supported on Patreon, which is also patreon.com slash Aja Barber. If you want something that will kill the urge to go into that fast fashion store that you know you don't need to go into, my Patreon will do it. It'll do it for you. Amazing. And then, you know, book, website, I'm, I'm around on the internet. You're around on the internet. You're findable on the internet. I'm very easy to find. I'm so glad to have found you on the internet because that's where we met at first. And now we're like in real life friends. Friends. Yeah. And you told me about cool things in Copenhagen. I mean, we met in real life first. Yeah. Yeah. We met in we real met life. We met at that summit. Yeah. And, and then we connected. On that's the right. Internet. Yeah. But yeah. But yeah, I, I am glad that we met as well. And uh, thank you for having me on your podcast. Thank you for taking a chance on Agatha Christie novel. I think it's really. It's really beautiful to put your interest out there knowing that some jerk like me might come along and not get it. No. <laughs> Honestly, this is why, A, I wanted to do this kind of episode, but B, why I wanted it to be with you because you are insightful. You are fun to talk to, but you will, like, not hold back. And I think that that is so beautiful and makes for such incredible conversation. And, uh you know, I love Agatha Christie for lots of reasons, but I know there's lots of reasons not to love her as well. And it's wonderful for listeners to hear both sides and to make their own informed decision. You know what? I'm a glutton for punishment, so I might read another <gasps> one. I oh, might, my God. I might. I'm not making any promises. Aja. I'm just saying it could happen. Aja, you heard it here first. Aja Barber loves Agatha Christie. I might read it. <laughs> We'll cut that. We'll cut it. It's fine. It's fine. Oh, my God. Aja, this has been, like, such a pleasure. Thank you to our producer, Kate Crischel, and our sound engineer, Winter Robinson. If you want to support this podcast, you can follow us on Instagram at Tea and Murder. You can rate and review us on iTunes. And you can tell all your friends and even strangers to follow us on your podcast platform of choice. We hope to see you next time for The Man in the Brown Suit. You can rent it from your local library, buy from your local independent bookseller, or if you need to buy online, we recommend bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores with every purchase. A link for next week's book can be found in the episode notes. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tea and Murder. We hope you had a bracing dose of both. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 